0: Welcome to episode 16 of Behold Her, a podcast that showcases the diverse stories of femme gamers and tabletop RPGs. I'm your host, Lisa Penrose, and this episode is all about femme small businesses. The holidays are soon upon us, and with folks seeking gifts for their tabletop-loving friends, I wanted to spotlight some amazing femmes making amazing things your friends and family will love. First up, we have Friday Elliot, whose synesthesia allows her to literally taste words and ideas, which she uses to blend delicious nerd-inspired teas at Friday Afternoon Tea. Then we chat with Paula Harris of Paula's Pixels, a shop with tabletop-themed pins, patches, clothing, accessories, and much more, all in an adorably fresh aesthetic. Finally, we hear from illustrator Rocket Orca, aka Amber Sager, in an audio story about how tabletop unleashed all the possibilities of life. This episode's audio story is brought to you by the Gallant Goblin. The Gallant Goblin is a review channel on YouTube for all manner of TTRPG products, from minis to dice to adventures. They specialize in high-quality and efficient videos and are known for their full 360-degree turntable looks at full sets of miniatures. Check them out at youtube.com slash or gallantgoblin.com to make an informed decision when buying your next set of loot. Alright, story time. Friday Elliot is the queen of flavor behind Friday Afternoon Tea in Seattle, Washington. Friday literally tastes words and ideas, and she uses the superpower to craft teas inspired by every fandom, from TV to literature to dinosaurs to our favorite here on Beholder, Tabletop, although dinosaurs is a close second. Friday, I'm so excited to chat with you today.
1: Yes, thank you, Lisa. I'm excited to be here.
0: So we are going to chat a whole bunch about tea, but we'll start with some tabletop. Did I get tabletop? Oh, I I regret attempting that pun. I'm mad at myself now. It was beautiful. Uh, so tell me, what is your tabletop origin story? Where did you first get introduced to the hobby?
1: Mm, well, I grew up uh, basically on a commune in the woods, raised by a bunch of hippies, and my uh, my older cousins were really, really into everything fantasy. Um, so they're about, you know, five, 10 years older than myself. And so I was raised around a whole bunch of tween boys who were really into ma- like magic gathering, really into dungeons and dragons, all of that. And I remember being so fascinated by every single thing that they did. And I wanted to be just like them. And they said, oh, you're, you know, you're a baby. You can't play with us. And that just really added to the mystique of tabletop for me, <laughs> being told you can't do this. I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna though." So uh, I grew up definitely very interested in Dungeons and Dragons specifically, um, and yeah, just kind of really always loved the creative side of it and the the idea that you can just take a pen and a paper and just make an entire world with as complex of a story as you want to, and that there are rules, but also you are in control of those rules.
0: <laughs> do you remember when? When did you
1: eventually get to actually do the thing? Oh yeah, uh, gosh. Honestly, it wasn't until after high school. It was a long time. Um I just kind of observed and then I was I was busy trying to become a huge Broadway star for like most of my childhood and uh so I didn't really get into into actually playing until I think I was about 17 and I graduated high school and a lot of my friends were just kind of bunch of nerds that I met around the U district in Seattle here. And uh, this uh, woman I was dating lived in a house of people who were so into Dungeons and Dragons and uh, Warhammer. And so I'd come over to see my girlfriend and her friends are all playing all these games. And eventually they said, Hey, do you want to play with us? Heck yes. So I started playing pretty regularly with them. Unfortunately, that was kind of a negative experience. They were, they were not uh, wanting to play in a style that was fun for me. Um, It was, Mm -hmm. they were very, very serious. Um, and very goal-oriented in their playing. And uh, they didn't really enjoy taking breaks to to goof off and chat with each other. They wanted to like stay all in character, completely driving the story and only the story. And um, that was a less fun play style for me. So I quit playing role-playing games again until honestly just last year. So I I tend to go through (laughs) like 10, 15 year gaps between (laughs) playing, but I think I'm in, in this time around. I'm starting to really have fun. (laughs)
0: What was it about role-playing games and that first experience you had that didn't completely turn you off, that made you open to trying the hobby again?
1: Gosh, um, it's almost impossible to entirely turn me off to anything. I want to do everything in the world. Uh, And I, (laughs) I think I'm just one of those people who's naturally inclined to believe that every interaction with uh, a concept, with a hobby, with a a medium is completely variable and depends on the, the context and the situation. So like, I, I don't think that I'm the kind of person who who has a bad experience and then that's it forever. I've decided it can never be a good time ever again. I think I just needed to take some space and realize what it was that I didn't enjoy and to see some examples of how it could be done in a way that was more enjoyable for me. And definitely um, raising a kid who is a huge nerd and really into specifically D&D has been helpful because when you see... When you see your child who you adore getting really, really into a hobby, uh, it's so much easier to, to then say, oh, okay, maybe this is for me again after all. Like someone in my own household is into this and my friends are into this. So maybe it can be done in a way that I'll really enjoy and it's time to check that out again.
0: Well, I'm personally, just as your friend, really excited. You kind of kept your (laughs) your heart open to tabletop. So you told us a little bit about the play style that didn't really mesh with you. What would you say is your play style?
1: Well, I think I'm still learning that. I'm still figuring it out. Um, I've been kind of playing around with different different systems. Dungeons and Dragons itself, I know, has gone through a lot of generations with a lot of changes. So I'm kind of um, educating myself about, like, what is 5e because it's certainly different from when I was playing when I was 17 years old. the The mechanics of it really interest me. I find that I really like all the kind of crunchy dice rolling and the math of it all, um, I enjoy being told, "Okay, now add these numbers together and roll this thing, and add that to this different, you know, bonus or whatever." Mm-hmm. The math part is so fun, and I know that's not—I feel like that's not a popular opinion in my in my uh, social circles. But I love <laughs> that part. Of it. Uh, if anyone doubted that you were a nerd, <laughs> are your credentials right there. <laughs> yeah like I like the storytelling side too but I'm a lot more comfortable and um, I find a lot more enjoyable honestly uh, crunching numbers and then letting that say okay here's what's going to happen and it's, it's almost like a like a prompt like a storytelling prompt and and so I, I'm discovering how to use number crunching to create an interesting story and kind of the intersection between storytelling and random generation <laughs> I think is very fun Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, there are definitely games out there that are more freeform where it is like truly just narrative and that can be really fun, but then also challenging for some people Mm -hmm. to just kind of pull something completely out of the ether. So Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, those roles giving you prompts and something to go off of
1: is really Mm -hmm. fun. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely, um. when I started to kind of get back into the hobby a little bit, I started with GM-less uh, story games because my my partner is really into story games. And for his birthday a few years ago, he said, I want to go to this story game meetup in Capitol Hill. And so we went and it was really fun. I was like, oh, this is completely different. Totally different. No dice involved at all and no GM. And you just go around and you just collaborate on creating a story. And I kind of adore that approach because it's, it's playing pretend it's playing dress up for grownups in a way that I think is so pure and wonderful. And then, you know, started doing games that actually involve any dice rolling at all. And I was like, oh, I also really, really like this. So I think I'm discovering that I like a lot of different kinds of gaming and I'm, I'm still figuring out what is my ideal system, my ideal play style. But right now I'm having an awful lot of fun, just goofing off, playing around and trying a lot of different things. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Do you have favorite gm list
1: games or just favorite non-D&D games that you've tried? I played a really fun one shot of a pillion a few weeks back um, through Magpie's curated play situation they got going on over there. And that was a blast. I like that because it's like, um, it's kind of my little pony meets, you know, cute baby dragons having adventures. And it was was really fun. Uh, The system is built so that you're fighting your own kind of darker instincts, um, which is very interesting to me. And I, I like exploring themes of, of like the, the duality of man, you know, <laughs> the, like, the dichotomous <laughs> nature of, of existence, the like light side, dark side, and how things are not like totally black and white. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And I've got a game actually coming up on Saturday uh, in a couple days here. Oh my gosh! Nope, that's tomorrow. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> game coming up tomorrow. <laughs> wow, um, that is! I finally get to play uh, *Pasión de las Pasiones*, which I've been waiting for since it was in play test. Um, my partner got to play test it, and it is a game where oh gosh, I'm so excited, Lisa! It's a game where you are a character in a telenovela. <gasps> Yes, <laughs> and oh my gosh! And it's my understanding—I haven't played it yet, so I'm not 100% sure of the mechanics. But it's my understanding that when it's your turn, you are some like character archetype from a novella, So you might be like El Camello, right, the the twin, or you might be like Ah, uh, uh, like I love the, the main playing off
0: tropes and archetypes.
1: Oh my gosh! It's that's totally what the whole game is built around, and it's designed to be really over the top, really dramatic. And and everyone whose turn it is not is the audience watching at home. And you give reactions to things that people are doing on their turn, and then they can gain like bonuses and and points and whatever from the reaction of the audience. So it's designed <laughs> to try to play it as over the top, ridiculous, dramatic as possible. As a young ex theater kid Latina, I'm like so into any game that is about novelas, where you get to play out these over dramatic, completely over the top tropes. And uh, and there's things like you get to be equipped with items like a large jangly. Set set of keys and like a dramatic scar that like no one knows its origin things like that (laughs) completely (laughs) absurd so um I'm very excited to play that tomorrow I've been wanting to for ages and I finally I finally get an opportunity to do it that
2: sounds
0: absurd and silly and just Mm -hmm. really really fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, so you've also blended some teas inspired by tabletop which we will get to in a moment but I wanted to ask first and this might this question might be a lot but what is your key origin story what's the windy path that found you to Friday afternoon
1: you know, um, it's not as windy a path as you might think. Uh, I have a really obsessive personality type. And when I'm interested in something, I have to learn every single thing about it. Like, you know, for example, one time I thought, gosh, it might be cool to have backyard chickens. And now I know how to build off the top of my head, six distinct kinds of chicken coop. And I know a lot about chicken diseases. Like I just get really, I get like, like Hermione Granger levels of intense about anything that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was raised by hippie herbalist types. And so like, plants as medicine is something that goes way, way back for me. And I feel very connected with dead plants as consumables. And my mother is a forest pathologist, so a tree doctor by profession. (laughs) And my parents did meet in Star Trek Club in high school. And all of these things kind of came and smooshed together to make Tea for Nerds, just sort of the inevitable conclusion of my life path. (laughs) But my, my first job out of cooking school... Oh gosh, I it said it's a little windy, isn't it? Stories always are. Um, more complicated than they seem. My first job ever was singing jazz at a club downtown here in Seattle. And that was my first career. I did that from the ages of 16 to 22. But my mother, being very practical, said, you have to have a backup career because you can't just rely on making a living in the arts consistently, blah, blah, blah. She's very pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Said, okay, I kind of like cooking. I'll go to cooking school. I'll get a job anywhere I want. Anytime I need, it's all good. So I went to cooking school. And the first job I got was at an English tea room. And it was my Mm -hmm. first time experiencing loose leaf tea. And I had a golden monkey black tea. And it completely blew my mind. It rocked my world, and I was like, "Uh oh, this is all I'm gonna do forever for the rest of my life. I have to know everything about this plant." So pretty much, I had one good tea one time, and then made a career out of it. it I was I was uh, 17 years old at the time, and I I had this one beautiful black tea, and that's all I have done uh, with my entire life. I'm turning 34 next week, and this is all I've done. (laughs) my life half of my life now has been spent studying tea obsessively <laughs> so yeah tea for nerds kind of came from growing up going to star trek conventions and all and uh and having a deep love of tea and then realizing that um my ability to taste words and ideas and translate them into flavors that other people can then also experience that you know that there was a market for that so yeah i can pretty conclusively say that um that I've basically invented fandom teas, which feels like a huge brag, but is also kind of true. I'm sure other people did also around the same time, but yeah, fandom blends, um, conclusively was the first one doing it on the market. So that feels pretty cool.
0: That is very cool. So what would you say is your approach to sourcing and blending teas?
1: Oof, well, the approach to sourcing absolutely stems from my, uh, From my very passionate farm kid um, hippie ideals, I definitely go as much as I can farm direct and every single farm that we work with, whether it's direct or through an importer, I make sure is vetted for uh, both social and environmental ethics before I'll even work with them. So that's really important to me. And it's taken me a long time to build up the network of farmers and importers that I have. Um, I've owned this company for 10 years now. And at first I started with very, very few kinds of tea because I just really wanted to be careful about my sources. And now at this point, I think we have right around a thousand different ingredients in house and, uh, and I'm proud of the source of all of those. And so that's, that's important to me. Uh, I do really find myself drawn to very unusual ingredients and to whatever, leaf or herb or spice or whatever that the farmers themselves are excited about so one of the first things i do when i meet a new farmer or a new uh, import contact is say well what are you geeked about like what is it that you're doing that is like really special that's very exciting that's you know not like what anyone else is doing and so that's how you know we end up carrying the that uh, Kenyan purple tea that does a cool color changing magic trick we carry a lot of like really unusual styles of oolongs and white teas and and green teas and all of that from different small farms like unprecedented styles of processing that are just like experimental so I'm really I'm really drawn to that or even just ingredients you don't normally see in a tea like we've got aloe vera chunks like dried aloe vera that we put in tea that is really not much of a thing in the United States but it's pretty popular to do in like Denmark and Germany or I'll put like little candies I love to put little fun shaped sprinkles in a tea just for aesthetic just to be pretty and make people happy or putting glitter in tea Um, we were one of the first ones putting edible glitter into our tea because it's just fun so I think there's something to be said for sourcing really high quality and really ethically produced ingredients and then not being a snob or a gatekeeper about it, just getting the good stuff and then just playing and having fun and just being joyful in the practice of working with these ingredients. Um, I feel like I answered half your question and then forgot about the other because I got too it. We
0: talked about sourcing. What's your approach to blending teas?
1: Mm, mm -hmm. My blends that I create are all, they're all complex. Composed of different elements that I literally taste when I read things, listen to things, absorb the media in any kind of a way, which is why I I lean so heavily into fandom blends because there's so much there's so much heart and depth put into the work and the fandom itself really informs a lot of it too. the way that people absorb the media, um, informs my blending choices just as much as the media does itself. So I'll take an idea, like, for example, the, you know, the, the RPG character class collection that we have and say like, okay, you know, let's make the bard blend. What does bard energy taste like? Like that archetype, what does the concept taste like? And so that one ended up being, uh, it smells like cupcakes and it has rainbow sprinkles in it, which is very important to me. <laughs> it is such like cute, hyper, like energetic, uh, like showbiz energy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's a vanilla black tea with ginger in it. And we needed the ginger for the heat, the like, um the, the flair, the look at me, char- like charisma factor. And we needed the vanilla for the kind of suave being able to read people kind of smooth energy. Um, And yeah, a black tea, it had to be something that was bright with floral notes and perky and highly caffeinated. It's just the way all those different ideas taste and the way they make a person feel when they taste them. And it's a little difficult to, to explain how I get from place to place because it just, the way that my brain is structured, just my brain chemistry, just an idea literally is a flavor. It just is. And so it's not so much I'm, you know, inventing things as I'm reverse engineering a recipe that already exists in my brain mouth and applying it to leaves and spices so other people can taste it too. So yeah, I just kind of do my best.
0: (laughs) For folks who are listening who are not already familiar with Mm. Friday afternoon tea, you have a particular type of synesthesia uh, that allows you to to taste words and ideas.
1: Exactly. It's called lexical gustatory synesthesia. And that means I I do literally taste words and ideas. That's how my brain processes that information is through the medium of taste. Um, I also have audio tactile synesthesia, which means I literally feel sound as tactile sensation, like very specific tactile sensation and mirror touch synesthesia, which means that I feel everything I see as though it's happening to my own person. So all of those just kind of are and um it's not terribly uncommon uh it's just it's a, a lack of sufficient or, or complete uh neural pruning in the developmental process so when, when we're all born all of our senses are crosswired it's just that most brains will kind of trim and and you know nip and tuck and, and straighten things out as they grow and some brains don't do as thorough a job of that as others
0: so you mentioned that you have been blending teas, working in teas for half your life at this point. What have you learned since that first cup of tea that you had at the English Tea Room?
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) What haven't I learned? It's, that's a, that's a long question to answer. I've learned... Primarily, I've learned a lot about um, what kind of tea experience I want to to offer and to foster in people. There are a lot of different ways to take tea. I'm a strong believer that tea is a beverage that is about connection. Uh, I think that in my industry, there's a lot of gatekeeping and a lot of um, a lot of really intimidating kind of if you don't brew your tea exactly such and such a way, then you don't know what you're doing. a lot of that kind of attitude that makes it really hard for people to to get into tea to begin with. And I think that's a real shame. So uh, I've certainly learned where I feel like my place is in the tea industry, which is to be kind of the (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) anti-snob, to get access to all these wonderful things and provide uh, education and be open and encourage people to explore tea and to connect over tea rather than feeling limited by what they already know. I I don't know how often people come into the tea house and they say, Oh, I'm sorry. You must think that I'm, you know, a heathen because I like cream and sugar in my English breakfast. I'm like, well, I mean, it's designed for you to put cream and sugar in and also it's none of my business. If you Mm -hmm. like your tea, you're doing it right. (laughs) But I think people just have been, have been unfortunately shamed a lot over not already knowing everything about not having perfect etiquette, et cetera, et cetera. I think those are really outdated ideas. And, um, against the entire point of tea, the beverage, tea, the plant, tea, the experience, if you look worldwide at the way that people drink tea in all these different cultures globally, you see it really, the root of it comes back to, to social closeness. And, uh, you know, I think honestly the root of etiquette is in empathy as well. So when people get hung up on etiquette being a certain specific way, I think they're missing the point. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, I, really do believe that what I've mostly learned about tea, cause there's only so much you can learn about agriculture um it's constantly shifting and evolving there are new things happening all the time i can study tea my whole life and never know everything which i love i love that about it <laughs> but i think the main point of it is that sense of connection either with yourself or with other people and i i guess most of what i've learned is that i feel like that's my my personal calling is to provide And facilitate space for that connection and space for that exploration without fear of being, you know, snobbed at. So Mm -hmm. what tips do you
0: have for folks who are listening to this interview, Uh, holidays are coming up Mm -hmm. and they're thinking, well, I want to get tea for someone as a gift. Mm -hmm. How does someone go about choosing a tea?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's that's when I get a lot, actually. Um, people want to pick a tea, but there's so many options. It can be really daunting. I mean, our selection alone is almost 400 different options. It's a lot. So what I like to do is say, well, what does this, like, do you know if this person is more a sweet or a savory person? And then lean toward that. If a person is more into the sweet, are they more into, you know, creamy sweet or fruity sweet? And then lean into to those picks that at least helps narrow it down significantly, um, how much caffeine or how little caffeine. And there's a whole decision tree, but if that is too complicated or you don't know all of those things, I honestly think the best approach is to just go with a sampler pack route. Uh, you can get just a sampler pack, um, certainly from our store for at any caffeine level that you like or a mixed batch of, of varied caffeine levels. And then people can have just a little, a little taste of a bunch of different things. And you know it comes wrapped up in a pretty little ribbon and that's really fun. And so it's already sort of a, <laughs> an inclusive uh, gift set that you don't really have to know anything about the person's palette. Also, I think a really good approach is to just ask, ask the people at your tea shop, hey, what do you, what are you seeing as a great seller right now? What do most people like, you know, in our area, um, etc. Because any any tea merchant is going to be able to tell you what are the top sellers. And usually there's a reason those are the top sellers. So <laughs> they're generally a pretty safe bet. And if you know a little something about the person's Tastes and flavors, then you can always ask about that too. But yeah, if you if you don't know or you don't want to ask, um, the sampler pack is always a good bet.
0: So something else that you offer at Friday afternoon tea are custom blends or sessions for making a custom blend. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and how that process works.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, so the custom blending process is one where um. I use my, my special superpower to uh, tap into the ideas and the moods and the flavors that a person is interested in creating. And we work together and collaborate to make the perfect tea. So people will come to me and they'll say, you know, I want a tea, that is just a good one to have with a book in the afternoon. I say, okay, well, what kind of book are you reading? <laughs> what, what, you know, what moods are we going for here? What's your lighting situation? Do you have a favorite blanket? Tell me everything about the scene we're setting so that we have a place to start. And then from there, we work together to refine and refine until you're completely happy with it. And then we at the tea shop, just keep that recipe on file forever, ever. And sometimes it is like, I want to make a tea for my fiance as a gift about like her stunning personality and then tell me everything about her tell me your favorite color what kind of shoes she likes to wear tell me you know your favorite memory and I will make a tea that tastes like all of those things so it's just it's a really lovely gratifying kind of mutual happy making activity that then at the end of it you have a recipe that is just yours and it's on file forever you can always reorder at any time that's awesome! Super fun.
0: I got to do a custom session with you for uh, my podcast, Tales from the Mist, mm-hmm. uh, and that was really cool seeing how you listened to the podcast and basically captured the essence in a tea.
1: <laughs> That's my superpower. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: So- We've talked a little bit about gatekeeping in the tea community, Mm. uh, gatekeeping in your experience in tabletop early on. Mm. What does it mean to you to be a femme in the tabletop space?
1: I have to say I'm so recent to getting into the tabletop space in any kind of a real way. I've been working tabletop industry adjacent for quite some time now um, and only really just dip my toe in as an, as an individual rather than like an NPC uh, recently. And I I'm really pleased to say that here specifically in our little Seattle bubble with the lovely people I know just from vending comic-con for years and whatever um, I haven't experienced too much, frustration or difficulty, my gender hasn't really seemed to be that big of a deal. (laughs) No one seems to care. (laughs) Um, It seems to be a non-factor so far in my experiences. Um, So I feel really glad about that. I know that's certainly not the case elsewhere and outside of tabletop in nerddom generally, I certainly have seen a lot of it, but I'm really glad to see that that just hasn't been something I need to even really think about or worry about at the table with my personal circles I've been playing with honestly Lisa I hadn't even thought about it until you asked oh, so well that's, that's always
0: nice. lovely to hear <laughs> and honestly every any answer is valid I think a big part of what I love about this podcast is I ask that question of I think pretty much everyone I interview, and the mm-hmm. stories really vary. They're mm-hmm. really diverse, just of the way we are as individual people.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely, and I think that there are certain um, like circles, certain groups that tend to have more difficulty uh, just playing a game with a person, you know, and not making it a <laughs> not making it a gender like thing. And I think that there are some some groups who can just play a game with a person. And call it a day, you know? <laughs> with like people. Yeah. Yeah. Like I feel really fortunate in my game contacts in my life right now. Um, that I just I just haven't had to to think about it. I feel really grateful about that.
0: so as we wind down this interview, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to share?
1: Hmm. Only how I feel about our friendship, which is great. Oh no. <laughs> oh, <goodness. laughs> uh no, I don't think so.
0: Right. Oh, uh, well then Friday, where can people find you uh, on the internet and find your teas?
1: Sure. Well, um, all of our teas are online at fridaytea.com. And also we do have an actual brick and mortar tea retail store in Seattle. And the address for that is on the website. We're open every day. Um, and on social media, I am everywhere at Friday Tea for the business side. And on Twitter also at Friday Elliot for my personal human being side.
0: Friday, thank you so much for chatting with me for Behold Her. Thanks, Lisa. If you are enjoying this episode of Behold Her, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash Her. Your contributions help us pay our editor, sponsor audio essays, and support other special projects out of Behold Her Studio. Special thanks to our latest rosebuddy, Sasha Van Catwick. Sasha, you help make Behold Her and more possible thank you, thank you, thank you. Paula Harris is a Bolivian designer working out of Nevada who delights with adorable patches, pins, and more inspired by RPG classes. In this interview, we discuss all that goes into her shop, Paula's Pixels.
3: So Paula, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with me. Of course. Thank you for having me.
0: So before we get into Paula's Pixels, Tell me, how did you discover tabletop RPGs?
3: I wish I remember exactly the first time I heard of them, but I can't. Like, I just remember always being interested in like the nerdy, geeky things to mm-hmm. do. But I feel like they weren't very popular where I'm from in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get a chance to play more than one session zero, I remember, when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And then I moved here And I met my friend, Acelia, and she finally set up like a group. She volunteered to DM for us and I've been playing ever since.
0: Yeah. Do you remember what was it about tabletops games that attracted you that made you want to try them out?
3: I really think it's the fantasy. Like I was really into Lord of the Rings, so Mm -hmm. I love that high fantasy part of the RPGs more than anything else. I think Mm -hmm. I just love the you know going shopping to a into a tavern and I I love that. And (laughs) if you could get that same feeling from a video game, I think I would play more video games.
0: Do you remember what your first character was?
3: Yes. It was a wizard gnome or half I can't remember exactly, who was inspired by the character Paris from Gilmore Girls. Oh my gosh,
0: that's amazing.
3: (laughs) I wanted someone who was really into the books and learning and being the best and just really annoying about it. Uh, (laughs) So I really want to bring her back because we we play like maybe a quarter of that campaign. So I need more of her.
0: A wizard is really complex for your first character. At least I feel like it is. (laughs) Yeah,
3: (laughs) I probably didn't do it right at all <laughs> it's just like the <laughs> list of emails I still don't know how they were, how to prepare them I'm like yeah but uh, I feel
0: like if you're having fun and everyone's having fun you're doing it right
3: yeah pretty much I, that's that's my number one rule <laughs> <laughs> so how did you
0: shift from starting to play tabletop rpgs or uh, later in life to designing tabletop rpg themed merchandise through palace Pixels?
3: I think I have to blame the Adventure Zone for that (laughs) because I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2017, they released the enamel pins for the Adventure Zone and I've never seen enamel pins that interested me before, so I was like, oh, this is cool, I could make my own. So I decided to design some Adventure Zone pins and people were really into it, but I knew the McElroy's weren't okay with people selling merch, you know, of their, yeah. of their shows. So I decided to just design some general tabletop RPG-inspired pins to sell. And that was like my first pin that I put in my store was, a, let's do some damage pin. And from then I realized, oh my gosh, people like this. So I, I just expanded from then oh
0: <laughs> that's awesome um do you remember what was your first collection
3: well the first collection a like complete collection that i did the kickstarter for was a class classics which was pretty much it started with the magic missile i was like okay that's like the wizard thing magic mm-hmm. missile and then i thought what would be the, the warlock thing is Eldritch Blast. And then what would be, you know, the monk thing would be Floreal Blows. You know, I just went yeah. for all the classes and I picked something that was classic to them. And that was my first like full collection. And it was a huge success on Kickstarter. So that kept me really busy for a while.
0: Were those the ones that were sort of that like green and blue and yellow color? Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. That's how I heard of you as well. Those pins were so gorgeous. Uh, thank you. So when you come up with these concepts, you're going to do like a magic missile pin. What exactly is your design approach? Where do you find inspiration for how that design is going to look?
3: I always start with going to Dribbble. Like I love that website to see... Just get the general aesthetic inspiration, pretty much. And I always like to think, what is no one else doing in, you know, the RPG field? Mm-hmm. Because I would hate to design something that someone else has done already. Yeah. <laughs> like, so my goal is always to, like, why is no one else doing? And what's the aesthetic that I want to go with? And from there, it's, you know, sketch on paper and then... I pick colors as usually like one of my first steps too, because every to me is is color. I love color, and then i I would you know bring it to the computer and vector it.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about your design process? I imagine <laughs> for you it's probably like pretty intuitive
3: yeah, I think so I think I, a huge part is picking the colors that's big. To me, like for that class classics first collection that I had, I was like, okay, they're all going to be these four colors or something Mm -hmm. close because I like everything, especially if it's a collection to be cohesive. Mm -hmm. So I don't like everything to be, I think that's the easiest way to make something look well designed (laughs) is to have like a color story. Yeah. So usually that's where I start for sure.
0: Yeah, I totally identify with that. I'm. I haven't done much in terms of like art and illustration design, but I worked as a floral designer. And whenever you make an arrangement, you want it to look cohesive with all the flowers. The first thing you do is pick a color palette.
3: That's awesome. I've never really thought of that. You know, like picking flowers.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's like a whole theory where you say you have like two different colors, you want your color palette, you need to choose at least two flowers for each color Mm. so that it has like those different tones and everything kind of melds together harmoniously.
3: That's awesome. Must be quite a science to it.
0: (laughs) So what do you feel like you've learned since doing that first pin collection?
3: Mostly I learned to believe in myself that like what I pretty much design for myself like everything I want to see I don't like designing for like oh what are people gonna buy mm-hmm. <laughs> it's usually like what I'm really into right now and mm-hmm. I think having my store for now three years also I've learned to have a very good customer service <laughs> like it's a huge part like no one tells you like 50% of your time is gonna be answering emails and like people's questions and people's you know customer service requests and things like that it was like a huge part of what i do now and also you want people to be comfortable buying your stuff you know you're in an online store so they can't see it in person so it's just communicating everything very clearly Mm -hmm. it's been a learning experience for sure
0: people I feel like for a lot of creative jobs don't realize especially if you end up I mean you're basically working for yourself so there's all this administrative stuff like the answering emails that folks don't realize come with the territory you're not just doodling and sketching all day
3: I wish but yeah no (laughs) it's just I've already replied to like three emails today. (laughs) It's never ending.
0: (laughs) Do you have any tips for that aspect of the job? Because I I imagine for some folks, stuff like customer service does not come naturally.
3: I I think it's just putting yourself in the person's shoes. You know, like sometimes... Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to say no, <laughs> mm-hmm. just because I feel for them. You know, it's like today I had someone ask, oh, hey, like I, I ordered this in small, but actually, can I change it to a medium? And it was already in production, but I'm still going to say yes. Like they ordered it yesterday. So mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, I'll eat that costume. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And it's just, I don't know. I just want people to have a good time buying from me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a huge part of what makes makes us a successful store. Like you want people to trust you. And also I love getting feedback for, you know, like the fit of my shirts and doing something about that. Like a huge part of my journey to like making apparel has been listening to people who told me, you know, like, Oh, I, I want to buy this, but like, it's not in my size. It's like, okay, so I'm scrambling to find something that will fit everybody. You know, just listen to everybody who gives you feedback.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you can really learn a lot just through listening.
3: Yeah, that is true. I love making everybody happy. (laughs) That's why I have so much work. (laughs) Do you have
0: like a favorite individual item that you've produced in a collection or put up in your shop, pins or patches or any of the many other things that you have?
3: I think this is a lot of people's favorite, and it's the the alchemist's pattern that I have in my shop. Like I put it on everything. It's on a, mm-hmm. <laughs> on joggers, on leggings, on skirts, on their button ups, on. I put on masks and it's just it's my favorite it's the one that I designed for my alchemist character that I had and I think you can tell that I designed it with a character in mind because it's very specific but like people love it like when you design something that you really like you know I think people really see that so that pattern specifically my favorite Mm -hmm. And I'm getting samples of that pattern on a skirt that's going to be like midi length, so a little bit long. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to get it because I think that's going to be my favorite thing.
0: (laughs) I love hearing you talking about your designs and your products because listening to you, I can tell you're very passionate about them and you design through passion and that that shows.
3: Yeah, I mean, I hope that shows (laughs) because I really design everything. For myself, pretty much. Uh, So I hate designing something that I'm not into.
0: So you mentioned on Twitter that you've just shifted to working for yourself full time. Congratulations. Thank you. Is there anything special on the horizon with this shift? Anything you're working on?
3: Um, Yeah, I'm going to focus on my Patreon a lot more because I kind of had it. Right now it's a sticker club. So people can sign up and they get a sticker for that month but I had to change it so it wasn't monthly because I couldn't keep up with everything and a full-time job and doing like monthly stickers but I want to go back to doing it monthly now that I in theory I have the time (laughs) and then my next step is to add a pin club to the patreon so and it's just it takes so much work because I have to Design and produce everything pretty much a month in advance because the production takes a month. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think I can do it. I'm so excited. I just need to believe they're going to have an idea every month, you know, <laughs> <Like> <laughs> something worth putting in a pin every month and that people will want to get it. You know, like that's also need that to happen.
0: <laughs> I mean, all uh, of your pin designs are just so tight. They're like really, really good. I uh, mean, you mentioned, you just mentioned like the production time is way longer than I think people might realize. Are there other aspects of making enamel pins that you feel like people don't know or don't fully appreciate?
3: I think the amount of detail that you have to, because you can think of, oh, I like this. I'm going to make it into a pin and you design it. And then you realize, oh, it has to be at least one point of, you know, thickness for this outline. Mm-hmm. And so it prints clearly. And then so it has to be the size. And then, oh, and it can't have open spaces because that would be see-through, you know, on the mm-hmm. pen. And that's not really the look I'm going for. And then you have to think, oh, and then what's the perfect color? And you have to pick it from the Pantone colors. So it's better if you have like a Pantone book so you can, because sometimes you pick a color in the screen and then they print it. And it's like, oh, that's totally not the color I wanted. So I finally bought a Pantone book so I can actually see it in person. It's so
0: dreamy, all those colors.
3: Yeah, I love it. But sometimes you're like, oh, I want this very bright blue. And it's like that doesn't exist, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so it, it's a lot of tweaking little things. I Sometimes I record my screen when I'm like vectoring. Pins, and it's like the amount of time I'm just like moving something a little bit this way a little bit that way and something just so there's no holes like in the mm-hmm. in the metal it, it's kind of crazy but I, I just obsess over little things like that and I think it turns out well <laughs> so yeah so I would say like picking Pantone colors huge mm-hmm. and then yeah the amount of detail you go into a little one inch pin it, it can get crazy.
0: Yeah, well, all of that effort definitely shows. So in tabletop as a hobby for you, as someone who produces stuff for tabletop fans, what has it meant to you being a femme in this space?
3: I think I was very lucky to start uh, on D&D with a a woman DM, you know, Mm -hmm. and with like really good friends. So I didn't have to feel like I never felt like I wasn't wanted at the table or anything like that. I've mm-hmm. always played with other people who are really my friends because I don't think I could ever go to like a game store and try to play with people. I don't know. I think I would be too shy. <laughs> it's just it's just like, who am I going to get? You know, yeah. unless it's all like women, I, I would feel a little bit shy, I think. But for my design, I think that back when I I started, I felt like no one was designing for my more femme aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I felt like all the, you know, D&D shirts I saw were like black shirts with like white lettering and unisex cut only. Mm -hmm. So that was like a huge part where I started designing is because I want like, I want color and I want. Did to be available in like a women's cut shirt Mm -hmm. and I feel like it wasn't maybe everybody was designing for who they thought was the only D&D players at the time you know like more and now I feel like my whole Twitter feed is full of people just like me you know like I can tell that they want the same thing that I was wanting and just more color, more options, not just one aesthetic.
0: Yeah, I, you can't see me right now because we do these interviews audio only, <laughs> but I'm smiling so big because I feel like that is sort of the magic and power of design that by, like, I, I don't know, if you post one of your designs and people are retweeting it, someone's going to see that and be like, oh, this is an RPG thing. This is a D&D thing. Maybe D&D can be for me.
3: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I love when people are like, I never buy, you know, D&D shirts, but I saw this one and it's just how I like my shirts to be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So
0: as we wind down this interview, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to share?
3: The only thing I can think of is that since I'm going full time now, I'm going to be more open to projects and, you know, with other people. I love working Mm -hmm. I always saw these projects pass by me, you know, like mm. other people doing really cool books and things So that I was like, ah, I wish I could participate, but like, I don't even have the time to think about it. So now I'm really excited to maybe work with other people on other projects. So, yeah, I'm just really excited about having time.
0: Well, I can't wait to see what you create next. Uh, For folks who are listening to this interview who want to collaborate with you or just check out all the work that you do, where can they find you on the internet?
3: My website is paulaspixels.com, and that's P A O L A. It's confusing. (laughs) And then I'm on Twitter as Eril, which is also confusing I R R E L. (laughs) And Instagram as Paula's Pixels too.
0: Paula, thank you again for taking time to chat
3: with me for Behold Her. Thank you so much for you know asking me again after I said no the first time. <laughs>
0: Amber Sager, aka Rocket Orca, is a graphic designer and illustrator. She co owns the Geek Spective podcast network, where she's a cast member, game master, and co host of a variety of shows. Check out her work at geekspective.com or
2: rocketorca.com. How do you feel when you make a mistake? Are you fine? Brush it off, move on, no big deal? Maybe only a little embarrassed. Or does it turn your stomach to acid? May your heart beat so loud your head fills with blood. You lose the ability to breathe, your vision tunnels, everything starts to close in. Then the voices start. You're bad. You're worthless. You're a mistake. I'm five. I call my friend without my mom's permission. A man answers instead. I hang up, but the man calls back. I'm scolded for using the phone. I'm bad. I'm 12. I get called on to read out loud from our science text. I wasn't prepared. I say orgasm instead of organism. I'm laughed at. God, I'm worthless. I'm 22. I'm put on the spot during a convention D&D game with strangers. I'm asked to describe what my spell looks like everyone's waiting. I start to tear up. Afterwards, I throw up. This was a mistake. Why did I do this? Growing up in my house was like walking through a death trap dungeon where every pitfall or ambush dealt psychic damage. In one corner, I had a father with obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar 2, and general anxiety. In the other corner, I had a mother who was incredibly religious. She always knew better and wasn't shy about letting you know. Clean up. Dad's coming home. Be quiet. Sit up straight. Watch your mouth. That dress is unflattering. Be modest. God's watching. I'll give you something to cry about. Have you showered? You're too loud. You look like a tomato. This type of feedback was a constant flurry of blows that shaped my brain and trained it to always be thinking about how others perceive me. My father was a man who could not control his emotions. He'd fly off the handle at what we thought were superficial issues, especially if it involved any sort of cleanliness. How we dressed and how we kept our belongings were under constant scrutiny. Once, I left books scattered everywhere in the house. He came home and in a rage, burned them all. My mother lived to tease. She picked fun at us here and there in what I'm sure she thought was a playful manner. But as a child, it came across as mocking. Most notably, my speech. I get excited and talk way too fast. My slurred words would be said back to me with a laugh church was awful because everyone knew everyone's business I heard the gossip between the church moms the intimate details of people's lives listed out like symptoms to be diagnosed I kept to myself as much as possible to prevent my personality behaviors and habits from ending up on the operating table like so many others Throughout my childhood, I did not want to be heard, and I most definitely did not want to be seen. The experiences with my father and my mother, combined with not being allowed to have friends outside of our religion, pushed me into a space where I was mostly left alone with my imagination. Reading was my number one escape. I'd make secret hideaways behind couches, nested in blankets, Snuggled with a stuffed animal or two, and learn about Laura's travels west with her family, mentally designing my own calico Sunday dress and wishing I could live in a little house on the prairie. I'd make elaborate inventory lists of what I would need in order to live in the woods like Sam in my side of the mountain. I'd even draw maps of forests and the best places to set up camp, hunt, or fish. I take walks along the creek by our house, jumping from one side to the other, pretending I was entering new worlds. I'd wish I had a friend, like Leslie from Bridge to Terabithia, and wondered how I would feel if I lost her. Spending so much time in those worlds with those characters, I think it was only natural I would in turn spend a lot of my time trying to craft my own worlds and characters. I was an incredibly creative kid, and I'm thankful to have had a sibling close in age who was as well. My brother and I spent the majority of our free time creating stories together. We'd record ourselves on my mother's old tape player doing variety shows and skits, reading our stories, making each other laugh as we brought our stuffed animals and action figures to life with our dramatic storylines and silly voices. We were once gifted a Talkboy, you know the handheld tape recorder from Home Alone, and it blew our tiny child minds. We could record anywhere and change the speed and pitch of our voices. Eventually, we both developed artistic skills, and we would sit together watching cartoons, clipboards on our laps, drawing our own characters and making comics together. Crafting these stories with my brother was sacred and special. We trusted each other and it became our own little respite in our often difficult childhood. Being creative had always been a private and intimate process for me and I rarely shared what I would make. The fear of ridicule loomed over me always and I kept my ideas close and guarded. And yet, I loved the feeling of sharing and creating with my brother Making each other laugh, the spark of excitement when we would surprise each other with cool ideas, being inspired by each other to keep making awesome new things, it was pure fun. Moving away from home and my brother and going our separate ways as adults was more difficult than I would have admitted at the time. I would miss the comfort of being creative with someone I was close with. Making friends was difficult for me, and it wasn't until I was in college that I began to open up. One day, I'm asked by a new friend, Do you want to play Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, no, I'll never play in D&D, that's silly. Oh, but I think you'd really like it, it's just making up stories, but, but with dice. It took a little prodding and convincing, but I finally sat down at the table with people who I knew and felt comfortable with. After the first session, I drew my character, an elf druid named Ampha, taking pains in crafting her outfit accurately from how I imagined it. I became the map maker and note-taker during the second session, keeping track of every turn, obstacle, and landmark. At the end of the third session, I had to leave behind my wolf companion in order to cross terrain he couldn't pass through. I apologized to him and said I would return, but I didn't make it back. Needless to say, I was hooked, but I had no idea how much of an impact that first small game had on me. For me, the draw of collaborative storytelling was so strong, I was able to slowly pull myself out of that isolated space my childhood experiences pushed me into. My journey has taken me from keeping all of my creative ideas between myself and my brother to playing in a seven-year-long D&D campaign with a close group of friends that includes the first person to ever ask me to sit and play in a D&D game to then GMing and producing my own actual play podcast for the general public to hear and getting to include my brother in them. Role-playing games and those I've played with have been instrumental in developing my creative voice and bit by bit replacing self-doubt with self-worth. I still get nervous. I still worry I'll mess up and make mistakes. I still hear that voice from time to time telling me how silly I am and trying to convince me I'll be ridiculed for expressing myself but over time, it's become easier to drown it out with the memories of fun and laughter I have while at the table, creating with others. You're a mistake. That's a lie. You're worthless. Completely false. You're bad. No, actually, I'm great. If you want to hear more
0: from Amber, check out the variety of shows she co-hosts, including Tabletop Babble, Shapeshift, Red Mage, Blue Mage, and the Warren of Petal Grove. Thank you to the Gallant Goblin for sponsoring Amber's audio story, and of course, thank you Amber, Paula, and Friday for sharing your journeys with us. Remember, if you love hearing these stories from femme gamers, you can help make Behold Her happen by supporting patreon.com slash beholdher. Hope to see you there!